Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When we look at the numbers, one of the fastest, most impactful ways we could achieve equity in the workplace is to have shared caregiving. Because even in companies that offer maternity leave, if they don't offer parental leave for all genders, then we're really reinforcing that childcare is a woman's responsibility. And so women are the ones taking a step back from their career. Coupling that with the fact that women on average get paid less than men, families are forced to make a choice between who's going to take a step back. And so there's a lot of these interwoven systems because of these outdated social norms and expectations. My name is Nicole Armstrong, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Nicole Armstrong, founder and CEO of Queen City Certified, an award-winning employer certification and cohort-based leadership program for gender equity in the U.S. And I met Nicole through some work stuff because I want to work on stuff that matters. (laughs) I'm not going to be podcasting all day. And half of our work conversations, I don't want to say derailed, but Sharon, they really got into the systemic issues and problems in our society and kind of what some of the solutions are. And I think that's what we spent a lot of time talking about when I wasn't joking about punching people. Yeah. <laughs> Although that was a good story that we heard about punching people. Her, not me. Yeah, her, not you. <laughs> I was usually the one getting punched, to be clear, in my history, in my life. That's probably why you guys are so compatible. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks. <laughs> but yeah, she's she's great. She... uh I really enjoyed talking to her. I really enjoyed hearing her perspective about the systemic issues, but also her perspective on solutions with gender equity and how, I don't want to spoil it, but like, you know, all of the ways that we could just make small changes to make big differences. And Well, you I, guys have both had experiences that honestly I haven't, you know? Yeah, because we're women. That's why. Yeah. I mean, straight up, <laughs> straight up. I, I'm the man. I'm the majority in this, in this right. conversation. Yeah. And it's funny because she kind of led with this too, but, and I shared my story, but like a lot of this stuff with workplace things didn't even like cross my mind until I became a working mom. Like, yeah, I always recognized that at the top, it was mainly men. It was almost like one of those, like, yeah, it's, that's a given, you know, like women get paid less than men, blah, blah, blah. But then getting pregnant and working full time and then coming back from that maternity leave, you know, being a new mom, having to juggle stuff that was it within the nine to five realm and then going home and having a family life outside of that, like 
a lot of that brought the inequities to light for me because it made me realize how challenging it truly is for women to get to the top. We just have to balance so many, whether it's implicitly and like unspoken roles that we assign to ourselves or what society expects of us, and also what other people's perceptions are of a woman that has a child at home or a woman that's about to have a child. So it was a really good discussion around a lot of those topics. And we talked about systems driving the expectations, you know, things like maternity leave policies are one thing, but but she she raised such an interesting point about paternity leave. I don't I don't think about it that much, but by employers not giving paternity leave, they're saying, "Oh, well, it's all on the woman." You yeah. know? And it's yeah. uh or we even talked about like our daughters and your sons and like kind of what job expectations are. It's a really kind of rich professionally driven, but also a lot of personal insight and in kind of what we're all going through or maybe what we're not exposed to. So we think you're really going to enjoy our conversation with our friend, Nicole. Nicole, welcome to the pod. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So people are kind of starting to get to know who you are as the founder of Queen City Certified. But before all of that, who were you before you started your kind of career path, your career journey? Oh, wow. You know, it's funny you asked that because not long ago, I was asked a question in an interview about what was the most exciting thing that happened to me 25 years ago. And I had to really think about this because 25 years ago, I was 13 years old. And so I started sort of going back into all of the albums that my mom had saved. So shout out to my mom for saving so many mementos. But I came across this essay that I had won an award for. And it seems so appropriate to share it with you today, right before we're going into election season. But the essay was called The Executive Influence. And it was all about how important the presidency is and how sort of the decisions of a president, the responsibilities of a president can really dictate the direction of our nation. But what's so interesting in all of this is throughout the essay, I refer to the president as his or her or he or she. So even back in my 13-year-old self, I sort of believed in the ability of women and men to hold executive leadership positions equally. And what was so interesting about this is I won an award through the Kiwanis Club for this essay for a $100 savings bond, which I still have today. I've never cashed, actually. So I have no idea how much it's worth now. But at the time, it seemed like such an amazing amount of money. But reading through this essay was just such an amazing reminder to me that as we go into election season, you know, that our children are watching. And so, you know, being the, the mother of a four-year-old, it was such a, an incredible reminder to really vote as if our as if our children are watching. So I think that's that's part of who I was even growing up, sort of acknowledging that people of all genders have the ability to lead. That kind of felt like an answer you would give. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's sort of who I've been since I was a kid. So I have so many other stories I could share with you, but I don't know how it's much very, time. It's very, it's, very, it's, very, it's very Leslie Nope of you. That's my Parks and Rec deep cut. <laughs> I mean, you've been working in the gender inclusion, gender equality space for a while, but where did that come from? I mean, you can't just say, oh, because I'm a 
girl. I'm, I'm asking the dumb male question, by the way. I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great question. You know, I think part of it stems from just growing up in a household. It was just, you know, my mom, my dad, my sister and I, and the only other male in our household was our dog, Ellington. And so we were always sort of this strong female <laughs> household. And my parents had always raised us to believe that we could accomplish anything, we, you know, we put our minds to. So I feel like at least in, in my upbringing, I never felt that there were any limitations based on gender. But that's not to say I don't think that I didn't observe some of the sort of social norms or expectations around gender, even at a young age, you know, like growing up in the 90s. And I think that there was this expectation and there was this sort of messaging that girls could do anything boys could do. And it always felt kind of odd to me because we never had the reverse messaging. We never said that boys could do anything girls could do. And so there was this very sort of male-centered approach to what was achievable and what was desired. And so I noticed that as a kid, and, and it always caused me to question so many different types of systems. I grew up, I went to a Catholic grade school, an all-girls Catholic high school. And I think the benefit of that is I always sort of questioned any systems and any rules that were put in place to say, you know, why is it the way that that is? Like, where did those regulations, where did those guidelines come from? So much so to the point that in high school, when I was really questioning why women couldn't become priests, a religion teacher said to me, well, maybe you shouldn't be Catholic. (laughs) But I think that that was always part of my you know, just upbringing is to just kind of question and better understand and seek to understand why things are the way they are and not not be afraid to seek changes to those systems if they're not serving all people equitably. What did you say to that priest? Sorry, because he basically said, not to put words in his mouth, but that was kind of like, well, get out of the club if you don't like the rules. Yeah, it's interesting because my response to him was, well, maybe you're right. How old were you? How old were you when you asked him that? I was probably around 16 or 17 at that point. And, you know, I think the benefit of going to that All Girls Catholic High School is I didn't face any of the sort of competition or challenges that you might in, in sort of a co-ed school. There was no gender assumptions of who was good at what subject because we were all girls, which actually was a blessing in, in many ways. But I think that it did sort of solidify for me that any institution or any organization or any system that's afraid to really ask deeper questions as to why things are the way they are needs some examination. And so for me, I think that sort of solidified that, hey, you know, there's a lot of really wonderful things that I've taken from this education and that I've received from the amazing teachers that I had, but there were some elements of the doctrine that I just, that he was right in many ways I couldn't, didn't see in line with my values. So in a sense, I kind of credit that upbringing, that going to that all-girls Catholic high school with sort of becoming the feminist that I am today, which is sort of interesting when you think about it. What are some other ways that you are similar to how you were back then, or maybe even different? Like, how would you compare yourself now to who you are as a little girl? Oh gosh, that's such a great question. You know, I've always been pretty strong-willed. My mom would always tell me the story that even when I was five, I didn't want to sit on anybody's lap. I wanted my own seat at the table or in the conversation. So I think that's fairly the same as it is now. I think one of the biggest areas where I've experienced growth is a sort of understanding that there's a lot more gray areas. You know, in my youth, I think, particularly when I was so passionate about social justice and, and changing some of these systems, it's easy to believe that the answers are black and white. And, 
you know, as I've gotten older and as I have a deeper understanding of the complexities of life, I think I've really come to understand how many gray areas there really are. And in fact, I think most areas are gray areas and how we really need to have empathy and compassion and understanding of where people are and sort of meet them where they're at. In my youth, I was probably much less patient than I am now. And and I would not describe myself necessarily today as a patient person, but I think I've come a long way in that regard. What are some things you did as a youth with your impatience? (laughs) Or due to your impatience? That's such a good question. Yeah, it's funny. I always think back to this story. There was a little boy in my neighborhood growing up who would always tease me. So I have red hair. And now it seems like, you know, people always respond positively to it. But when I was a kid, I was teased so much for having red hair. And there was this little boy in the neighborhood who would tease me all the time. And he was just relentless. And one day I said, look, if you don't stop teasing me, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to punch you. And I meant it. And he wouldn't stop teasing me. And so finally I had it. And in my, in my my impulsive youth, I did. I punched him. And his mom called my mom later that day and said, I was the neighborhood bully. And so I think those are the kinds of things, you know, just that impatience that when people aren't listening, I would have a really difficult time if I felt like I wasn't being heard. So those are some of the things I did in youth, maybe that, you know, now I would I would handle with much more diplomacy. But as a child, I think <laughs> that impulsiveness was was part of my character, I, I think. I love it. What did mom and what, what did your parents say about that? <laughs> My mom defended me. She said, my daughter's not the bully. Your son's the bully. <laughs> and and I think she did actually say to his mom, like, she warned him, you know, she gave him a heads up. <laughs> we, you know, it's funny. We had another guest who, she tells a similar story. She got picked on because she didn't speak English. And she punched a kid. <laughs> and, and her parents were like, well, you were in the right. I wonder, Sharon, we should like totally probe with our male guests. Did you ever punch right. anyone? And what happened? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's nothing that I would necessarily encourage my daughter to do. But to be fair, I think it's so interesting. (laughs) I gave him a warning. And I feel sometimes when people have said to a certain extent, like, look, I've had enough, and I'm giving you this warning, and they're not taken seriously. It's like that last resort. I think as a child, that's what I ended up doing. I think that's great. You just won my heart. I'm like, okay. I would feel safe hanging out with you now. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yes, I would defend you in any way I possibly could. That's for sure. And as a male, I don't. Oh. No, no, you won't punch me. No, I'm much more diplomatic now. We could tough it out in words, I think, more so than than physical violence. Challenge challenge accepted. (laughs) What did you want to be? when you were growing up? And what did your mom want you to be? Oh, this is such an interesting question. When I was little, I was certain that I was going to be an animator for Disney. So I took cartooning lessons and my parents were incredibly supportive. I took private animation lessons for years and I really loved it. I thought for sure I would work for Disney. My parents were pretty open to what career I chose. I think they were always very supportive. I always had a talent for the art. So I think that they knew that I would go into something using that creative ability. But what that was, I mean, they never really pushed me in any certain direction. They were very supportive in whatever it was I decided to do. I will say probably in high school, I was, I was thinking about college majors and what to go into though. I think they, they were sort of the voice in my ear that was saying, pick a major that you can actually make an income with. And I think that was sort of, hey, fine arts would be great, but can you earn a living? And so I actually ended up going into graphic design instead. But yeah, they've always been incredibly supportive of that. But that's 
if you asked me when I was a kid what I would be, I would have said I'd be working at Disney at this point. Well, you wound up going into design, right? So how did you go from design to gender equity work? It's interesting. I actually think that my training in design and sort of the comprehensive look at problem solving has been incredibly helpful in working in equity work and really thinking in terms of systems. So I've always been interested in creative problem solving. And for a long time, that was in the creative in the creative arts. So specifically in communication design and graphic design, and how do we convey messages, whether it's to educate or inform or to inspire. But even after college, I really wanted to meld the two fields together. So this passion for social justice and this passion for design. And so the majority of my career in design was spent working with mission-driven organizations. And in fact, I started my career at an NGO in Geneva, Switzerland, really helping them to figure out brand strategies so that they could really raise awareness about the work they were doing regarding human rights and environmental protection. But I think it was a natural transition. I moved back to Cincinnati in 2015 and joined an organization as a social innovation specialist, which used the concept of human-centered design. So really engaging end users in designing solutions in which they would be the users. And that was an incredibly formative experience for me because it was a way to apply the tools of design to solving sort of sticky social challenges. And so it really set me up to start thinking in systems level and design level, right? Because our workplaces, our systems, they're all a matter of design and they function exactly how they're supposed to function given their design. So if something's not working or if the outcome isn't serving all people, that's a design flaw. So for me, I sort of view that as a challenge to say, okay, if we're going to reimagine what that could look like, how would we redesign that? So in a sense, it was a natural transition to take problem solving in communication to problem solving in systems. Did you have any direct experiences that kind of drove your decision making on things that were working and not working in our systems? Oh, absolutely. I think my own personal experiences, as well as the experiences of other women that I know and had worked with, in particular, a few stories stand out. When I was working in the social innovation space, I had the opportunity to work with a single mom who had given birth at, I want to say, 28 weeks, and her son was in the NICU. And it wasn't clear if he was going to survive or not. And she worked at an employer that was less than 50 people. And so she had no access to paid time off. She had no access to parental leave. She didn't even have access to FMLA. And I just remember thinking as she had to go back to work and as her son was in the NICU, with all this conversation around valuing family, it became very apparent to me that we really only value certain families because if we valued families, there's no reason that this new mom wouldn't have an opportunity to sit at her son's bedside in the NICU. But I think even from my own personal experiences as I've been job searching, one of the, I think, pivotal moments where this idea around certification and and gender equity in the workplace became sort of actionable for me was when I was applying and interviewing for jobs and I'd I'd gotten this job offer from an employer and the job description didn't match the job title and the salary that they offered was just above what I'd made at this small nonprofit. And it was very clear that that salary was based on my previous history. So I had talked to the recruiter and I said, look, I think there's this mismatch between what you're 
the role that you're trying to fill and the expectations you have for the role and the salary. And he, and he said, no, absolutely. I encourage you to negotiate because there's a lot of flexibility here and we've just reimagined this role and you're absolutely right. There's a lot more responsibility to this job than we'd previously thought. And at the time, there was so much language about women leaning in. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to I'm going to lean in. I'm going to negotiate for this. And I did. I, I asked for a title that would sort of match the description as well as the market rate salary. And they rescinded the offer. And I, in the back of my mind, I couldn't help think, would I have had the same outcome if I were a man? It's sort of that gray area where you're not sure, but you sort of have this gut feeling that maybe the outcome would have been different. And not long after, I ran into a very good friend of mine who I'd gone to college with. And she said, I was freelancing for this company for over a year. And they told me they would make my job permanent. And when she asked them to consider her for the role, her boss looked at her and she was expecting at the time, she was pregnant at the time. And he said, well, look at you, we can't hire you. And I think that that story coupled with my own experiences and seeing how women, particularly in lower wage jobs, sort of experience the workplace was the final motivator for me to say, look, we've got to do something, right? It's At the time, it was 2018. And I thought, why are we still talking about this? Why is this still such a challenge? And so that's how this idea of sort of a gender equity certification for employers was born. It was really out of personal experiences and understanding and listening to the experiences of others. It's funny because some of your experience and also just the way that my own perception of workplace equity didn't actually come to mind until I was pregnant myself. And you talk about whether it's parental leave or paid time off. And I always assumed that every company just offered paid time off for maternity leave. Like it was never even, it was just this assumption that I had in my early 20s before I got pregnant. And it wasn't until I was experiencing that myself where I was planning to, I had gotten pregnant and I was planning to take time off that I realized that my employer at the time, which was a nonprofit, didn't offer paid time off. And it had about 400 employees. They did offer disability and they obviously legally had to offer FMLA, but I was shocked. And I was working at the Girl Scouts of the USA. And I was like, wow, of all organizations, I would have thought that the one, that one would have just, I mean, I think it was probably budgetary or some other things. But then I started to dig into it a little bit more. And I realized at the time, anyway, they didn't have to. It wasn't a legal mandate for them to. It was a forcing function, right? Right. So you could take, I mean, if, if they had, if someone was fully employed and they had an insurance policy, they could use disability to cover some of that for, I think it was about, I think it's like 75 or 80% of your pay. But I remember just completely feeling kind of duped about that because I think a lot of people don't talk about it. And I think women don't even realize it until they're in that situation where it directly impacts them. And then they're faced with the decision of, well, what do I do? Do I, do I shorten my leave because I can't afford to take three months without pay? Do I take side jobs while I'm on maternity leave? Do all of these questions. And I've had several female coworkers that did just that. They, they were home with their babies in the early, in the early days and ended up going back to work, quote unquote, part-time, sometimes virtually and remotely, but because they couldn't afford to pay the bills without their regular income. And so what you'd speak of, it's one of those things where it's almost, I see it as almost a a hidden challenge because 
it's not like it's broadly, it's not broadly. Well, we all, we all assume it's the system is just. Right. 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 Exactly. Well, and that's, that's what's so interesting about the systems that we have in place. And I think many of them have been designed as if sort of the white, heterosexual, male, cisgendered, able-bodied experience is universal. And we can begin to see that when we see what is legally mandated and what's not. And parental leave is not. And we're one of the only developed nations that doesn't have some form of paid parental leave. And truly, when we look at the numbers, when we really think about the impact of that on equity in the workplace, one of the fastest and most impactful ways we could achieve equity in the workplace is to have shared caregiving. Because even in companies that offer maternity leave, if they don't offer paternity leave or parental leave for parents of all genders, then we're really reinforcing the notion that childcare is a woman's responsibility. And so women are the ones taking a step back from their career. Coupling that with the fact that women on average get paid less than men, when families are are sort of forced to make a choice between who's going to take a step back, for childcare, often it will be the woman because not many families can afford to have a person who's making more take a step back. And so there's a lot of sort of these interwoven systemic, yeah. Yeah, systems that make it very difficult to actually reach gender parity in the workplace because of these outdated social norms and expectations. Yeah. Well, I think so to dig in a little bit, but not too much on kind of what your day job is now. We can lobby and we can vote and we can hope that we get these things to change. They will over time, but it's going to take a while. And what's interesting about the certification model is almost it becomes a badge of honor for doing the right thing. And the counter to that is you're shaming people who aren't doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always joke that we're unabashedly pro-peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> love that. I like that. I'm going to steal that. I love that. <laughs> because truly, so sitting in 2018 with these experiences on my mind and the experiences of other women, and really also I want to acknowledge as well the privilege that I had as a middle-income white woman as well. I think that if it was difficult for me and maybe a former classmate of mine to navigate these systems, think of how incredibly difficult it is for women who have other intersecting marginalized identities, so women of color or LGBTQ plus women or women in low-wage jobs. And so I think for me, it was sort of that aha moment of saying, look, what can we do to really using an asset-based approach, really celebrate the organizations that are doing well, and then give them the skills and the tools to do better. And by making it a certification, by making it sort of this public declaration, this public commitment to equity in the workplace, we're sort of using this positive reinforcement to encourage companies to do better. And the ultimate idea is that as more and more organizations get certified, that equity in the workplace would become the norm, right? That employees who are seeking new job opportunities or job seekers or even investors would say, look, we really want to invest in companies who have made this a priority, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because it's good for business. And so this would be sort of that badge that they could use to identify those organizations quickly and hopefully help create this um, sort of sea change, this momentum that we really need if we're going to see systemic progress. What's the pushback? What's the counter argument? Why don't people want to do this? 
Well, I think there's always a fear, particularly when you get into organizational change and systems, that the folks who have maybe benefited from them without having to to do much. So particularly in the United States, I would say dominant culture is male and cisgendered and heterosexual and white. And so anytime you begin to really rethink of systems through a different lens, you run the risk of folks feeling like they're having something taken away from them. They're being disadvantaged. Yeah, that they themselves then feel disadvantaged because we're sort of, in a sense, leveling the playing field. And that can feel very difficult. I have heard employees state, look, as a white male, I feel like I no longer am considered for a job or I'm no longer considered for promotion. And so they feel they themselves are being discriminated against because of those characteristics. And so I think there's always this fine balance between progress and meeting people where they are and trying to do a good job of really educating folks on why changing systems is going to be for the betterment of everybody. But I think some of that pushback comes from fear, fear of losing maybe what they've felt entitled to or what they've had, fear of what those changes might mean and what those outcomes might look like. But I think oftentimes pushback for any any sort of progress is derivative in fear. Because no one would want to weaponize that fear for, I don't know, political gain or... Well, it's so interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting because just I think on September 22nd, President Trump had an executive order that basically said racial bias and gender bias training is no longer allowed for any federal funded programming. And so it is interesting. There has been, I think that's an ultimate example of pushback against this type of work and, and the progress we're trying to make towards systems change. You and I have talked about this offline, but training is almost a false band-aid. Not just talking to you, but talking to other activists and advocates and people working in the space. If you get your checkbox by going to your sexual harassment training or your (laughs) diversity in the workplace training, people go, or uh, two things happen. One, people go and they feel like they've done it, check. Or two, they do it and they go back to work and they just observe the bad behavior with no penalty or policy. Right. Versus... I feel like it's kind of like, Sharon, I'd love your take on this. A completely different thing. Remember the 20-ounce soda ban in Manhattan? Yeah. I can see both sides of that. One is, what the hell, nanny state. But the other side is that we're putting a rule and a peer pressure thing in place because you guys are going to drink yourself to diabetes. (laughs) (laughs) Or like helmet laws on motorcycles in Kentucky or other states. Or seatbelt laws or any of those things. Yeah. I, I actually always use the seatbelt law as my counter argument for anti-soda caps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, well, one, we've all been, if you grew up in America, if you're from America, we've all sort of been immersed in the culture that sort of places like white and male at the center. And so it's very difficult to overcome those biases, particularly when a lot of times they're unconscious. And it it can be very difficult to change behavior. And there was actually a study that came out not long ago that looked at a meta-analysis of almost 500 studies around implicit measures and basically discovered that changing your implicit bias is possible. It takes a lot of work, a lot of self-awareness, a lot of reflection, but it doesn't always lead to changes in behavior. And I think part of that is most often than not, our brains are sort of operating on this autopilot and we resort back to the stereotypes and the lived experiences and the things that we've seen and heard and read about in the media 
when we're making judgments about about people or about situations or about decisions. And so it's very hard to overcome those biases when we're making decisions, when when we actually are conducting our behaviors. And so one of the things I think that is really promising is this idea of actually disrupting bias and systems. So how can we actually make it easy to do the right thing? I always use this example because I think it's so poignant. The Harvard Business Review had done a study where they looked at a final pool of four candidates, and they found that if there was only one woman or one person of color, they statistically had zero chance of getting hired. But if you actually increase that candidate pool by one, so if you had two women or two people of color, the chances of hiring a woman or person of color actually jumped to be representative of the candidate pool, so over 50%. And so those are the kinds of things that... Systems, you can... Yeah, you can influence, you can nudge people toward the right directions in systems change. And so I think that has a lot of promise, and that's what I've been really fascinated by to really understand how do we change outcomes, how do we change behavior? behaviors through simple tweaks to policies and organizational systems. Do you ever feel as if you need to do anything different to fit in into work culture? That's really interesting. That's a good question. I think in many ways, I carry privilege as sort of a white middle-class woman that it's fairly easy for me to to work within what might be perceived as a professional work culture. In some ways, I think that Sometimes, and and maybe this this comes down to everybody, but how I dress or how I act, or I even fall into the trap sometimes of feeling like oh, I need to be more confident or I need to have more presence, those kinds of things. But for the most part, I do think that work culture has very much been formed around an idea of professionalism, which again, I think tends to reward what we would consider as middle class and white. And so I, in, in that sense, I think I've probably benefited from those systems in that way that I feel like I can meld in fairly, fairly well with that type of culture. That makes sense. Do you ever feel like, I mean, I'm assuming your, your role is going in and consulting with different companies and organizations. And do you ever find yourself kind of in that same moment that you were when you punched that little boy? I hate to set it up that way, (laughs) but where you know what's right and you're in the room with someone where maybe they're not seeing eye to eye with you about those same things? Like, what do you do in those moments to either get them on the same page or just to kind of see see things through a different lens? Oh, gosh. Yes, I have been in those moments. I think I always try to understand where they might be coming from. I think that's the first step. I've gotten better at that as I've gotten older to really understand, okay, well, maybe their perspective is informed by their own lived experience. So I find by asking questions, instead of reacting, I get, I think it's easier to get more positive responses and have more productive conversation. But they're at the same time. Are you saying punching people doesn't work? <laughs> not always. Not anymore. Not as an adult woman. Mm. I feel like that's that's frowned upon at this point. I mean, there's been moments where I feel like it <laughs> could be called for, but but I do have some restraint more so than I did when I was a young child. But yeah, I think really trying to understand where people are coming from has been helpful. I also recognize at this point that there are some folks that you will not change their minds. And what the strategy that I have found that works more often than not is engaging the people who really believe in those same values, but don't know what to do next. 
And so one of the things that I'm really passionate about is sort of building a community of employers so that they can support one another and so that they themselves are leading the charge. So it's not coming from one organization in particular, but many organizations who are out there sort of trying to make change and trying to to reform what our workplace systems look like. And so I have focused more of my energy on engaging the people who understand the importance of this work than trying to change the minds of the folks whose minds will probably not change. Now, that's not to say that I don't have conversations with people who disagree. And actually, I think it's really important to seek out differing opinions. But I think there's a difference between having differing opinions and and being able to listen and understand and have a really good conversation and somebody who just sort of is going to dig their heels in and not budge. So I've learned to sort of let those things slide a bit and really focus on motivating and engaging and lifting up the folks who are ready to do the work. Right. And I think I love that. I love that because I think it allows you to have empathy for where they're coming from, but also tie that back to where where you think they need to go. And it is much more effective than punching. So I'm very proud of you. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing wrong. Right. You've got to try conversation instead of throwing the fists. That's why we don't do these interviews in person. <laughs> it keeps everybody safe. <laughs> it would be quite exciting, I'm sure, though. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about Switzerland. And I know you you spent some time there in Geneva. And I personally had this kind of eye-opening experience not related to Geneva, but to the UN. And so I kind of want to get your take on some things that you saw there versus the US. But long story short is I went to the Commission on the Status of Women one year at the UN because I used to live around that area. And somehow I got invited to an event there and heard about all of these atrocities that were happening all over the world with women that I just wasn't aware of as an American who grew up in the US and just thinking that things were fine and hunky-dory and just, it all just felt like at the time, it just felt like all of that stuff was really far away. And it wasn't until I was in a room with people from other countries that it just became really clear that girls were being married off at a very young age in in various parts of the world that Australia had, I think it was like a 97% rate of domestic violence, just a lot of stats that shocked me. But the one thing that blew my mind more than anything else was they were trying to get a bill called CEDAW passed. And I just looked this up because I wanted to make sure I was saying something factual, but it stands for the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And essentially, it's a bill that equates women's rights to human rights. So for any country that isn't abiding by practices that respect women and treat them as equal to men, that those countries don't get the same support from the UN and certain sanctions are kind of put against them. And they were trying to get this bill passed unanimously across all the countries. And at the time, I want to say this was like about 10 years ago, there were maybe five countries that hadn't signed the bill. And one of the countries that did not sign the bill was the United States of America. Yeah, that's right. And I just went onto the website because I was like, let me check this before I mention it to Nicole. And we still have not ratified this bill. Our country, we are now one of two countries that haven't signed off in all of the UN. The other country is Palau. 
And I just, it's one of those moments. It was a moment in time for me where I was just thinking, holy crap, I was working at a big company at the time where we were, I was working on Dove, to be honest, where we had just launched the Real Beauty campaign. I felt as if I was doing all of this stuff to support women and embrace confidence and and all of those things. And then sitting in this other room where I was looking at this global scale of what was really happening, it was just totally mind-opening. And so I'm just curious to know, I'm sure when you were in Geneva, your experience there was probably very different, I would assume, than it is here in the U.S. And can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I feel like our listeners and people that are maybe, even if they're global travelers from a policy level, I don't think a lot of people realize how that impacts culture and society and communities and how in the U.S. we really are like a gazillion years behind other countries. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think what's interesting about CEDAW, while the United States has not ratified it, there are some cities within the United States who either have ratified it or have a resolution to support the ideologies behind CEDAW. Fortunately, Cincinnati is one of them, which is amazing. But yeah, to your point, I mean, living in Switzerland and particularly having an opportunity, I think, to sort of explore other cultures in a lot of the years in my formative years, I moved there right after college. And I think just being exposed to other cultures where equity was more at the forefront and not even just with gender equity, but I would say economic equity. So having systems in place to make sure that people had access to education. I remember once I had to go get medication. I was very sick and I had to go get medication and I was able to just go into a pharmacy and get the prescription that I needed and walk out the same day. I didn't have to pay a copay. I didn't have to do any of the things that we have to do here in the United States to really access the healthcare that we need. And in my mind, I just kept thinking, why, if we're one of the most quote unquote developed nations, have we not been able to figure this out in the United States? And I think having access to such an international community in Geneva, particularly because there are so many people employed at the United Nations and the organization I was working with called Franciscans International had a presence at the United Nations as well. I actually had an opportunity to sit in on a commission on the occupied territories. And it's just so interesting when you begin to you hear other perspectives and you begin to realize in many ways how behind we are when it comes to human rights and civil rights. Even though we may have some laws passed, we're really lagging behind. I also think with CEDAW, one of the biggest hangups with signing onto that resolution was a woman's right to reproductive health care. And I think it's something that we have not really made a lot of progress on in this country in terms of acknowledging that a woman should have control over her own health. And it continues to be a very contentious issue here. And even in other nations that are more religious or have more conservative views, they've still signed on to CEDAW because of the importance of acknowledging women's rights as human rights. So I think to your point, yeah, it's 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 an indicator of where our values maybe lie and where some of the challenges we're facing in terms of becoming the country that we really aspired to. I think it becomes apparent when we begin to see what have we signed on to, what have we not signed on to, what do we support, what don't we support. And of course, CEDAW is very indicative of that. 
The other issue that I think the United States hasn't necessarily, we haven't renewed a policy that would protect victims of domestic violence. And so that's another challenge that we need to face in the United States is how do we really support people who are experiencing intimate partner violence and gender-based violence? And we think of that as something that happens in other nations, but Truly, we have, I believe it's one in three women will experience it in their lifetimes and one in seven men. So that's another challenge I think that we as a society don't often talk about, but really need to dig a little bit more into. Yeah. Yeah. I think something we don't, I don't know if it's American exceptionalism or the fact that we are kind of out here on our own on this side of the world, because we're a big country geographically and we don't leave it that often, is I think you kind of have to look up and down the spectrum. One, the raw tragedy that's happening in other parts of the world, but it's dangerous to be like, oh, well, that's just the other countries versus you go look at a lot of Northern Europe and even Latin America that where they're making some of the right calls or the right policy choices. We just have this assumption that we're doing it right. We're not always, or it's this complacency that what we've got is good enough. And I don't, I don't know if it is. It's frustrating. Yeah. And I think, I think there's hope though in that, in that we, yeah, bring us back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do think that I think there is hope in that we have we do have some systems in place that allow us to progress and that allow us to change and that allow us to learn and to grow. And I do think that the majority of the American people believe in the rights of of human beings and of being able to live safely and freely. And so I think that that is where we move forward from. That's where we find hope and we continue to advocate on behalf of those who've been marginalized or those who have not had a voice at the table historically. And so I do think that, I think it's achievable. I think we just need to really focus on how do we begin to reimagine what those systems could look like and begin to measure the outcomes of the changes that we make to ensure we're moving in the right direction. So your day job has you thinking about this, talking about this, convincing people, changing minds, not punching them. How... (laughs) How does this come to life at home? Because I, I'm start, I think we both have daughters about the same age, and there's my belief system out in the world, and we've talked about this on the show a couple times about like with Black Lives Matter and things like the conversations we have around the dinner table. Because my little person's values are being shaped. Honestly, my values are being shaped in conversation with my wife on things I didn't understand or know more about. I don't want to be a wives and daughter kind of guy because that shouldn't be the reason, but I'm more informed in my practice when I look at it through my own lens. So like, how do you, how does this come to life in conversations with your partner, with your, with your daughter, et cetera? I think we've always tried to raise her to make decisions on her own and think for herself. And we, and we can begin to see that. It's funny. My parents always laugh that she's like a mini version of myself times 10. So I don't know if that's karma or if that's just some sort of beautiful karmic justice, but she is so fiercely independent and we try to nurture that as much as we can and really talk to her openly about some of the challenges that our nation is facing. So we've made a priority. My my husband is actually Costa Rican American. And so we've made an effort to talk to her about race to talk to her about injustice in ways that she can understand. And so we've we've really tried not to shelter her from some of the challenges that are going on right now. At the same time, it's so interesting how the cultural messages that you receive can influence 
you at a very young age, even if my husband and I try to raise her to believe that people of all genders can achieve and be in any profession and work in any area. But not long ago, she said to me on the way home from daycare, well, boys can't be in ballet. And oh, that, that actually happened. Yeah. With, yeah. Said, oh, at home. Yeah. And I thought, well, honey, of course they can be in ballet. In fact, she had two boys in her ballet class. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that those cultural norms are so strong that at the age of four, she could already observe what are the gender expectations and and the norms around uh, around professions and what you can do. And so that to me felt like a little, a little of a, a knife to the gut, considering how hard we try to really... To to raise her to understand that people of all genders can do any sort of work. But yeah, it's so funny. So we, we try to make that a priority. I'm very fortunate in the sense that my husband has been incredibly supportive and he's an incredible caretaker. So we share a lot of the childcare duties and the domestic responsibilities, whether it's cleaning the house or doing the laundry or cooking. And I know in some ways that's sort of an exception. So I'm quite grateful to that. But I think we have a lot of open conversations, even with each other, when we begin to think that things are unbalanced or if I say, hey, like, I really need you to, I feel like I'm taking on the majority of this load. Can you help out? And he's been incredibly responsive in that. So it's something I think that we've prioritized as a family. But again, like, you know, we can't mitigate all of the messages that she'll receive. And she is starting to notice differences between skin colors and she's starting to ask questions. And so it's something that we welcome, but it's also something I think that we're trying to navigate. You know, I read somewhere that this idea of I don't see color, colorblind isn't the solution with kids. You actually need to talk about there are differences in what society does and what we should do about them, not making them gender blind or colorblind, making them aware of the issue. And it's a hard thing to do with a four-year-old, but, yeah. but it's like, th- these are, I don't want to call them the formative years or the teen years when you discover if you like Nirvana or the Foo Fighters, right? But like, <laughs> these are habits and practices and value systems are being formed right now. Well, I'm so curious because both of you have children as well. I'm so curious to hear how you facilitated conversations with your kids, given everything going on. Yeah, Sharon, your boys are a little older. I feel like Nicole and I can protect our kid from the noise on TV, right? The shit show dumpster fire that is going on right now. But your boys are more observant. They're listening to it. They're hearing it in the streets, literally sometimes. Yeah. They just get spanked and punished and put into the corner. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You take the approach that I did when I was a child. (laughs) I'm kidding. Yeah. So my, my kids are six and eight and they are definitely much more exposed to media and outside messages. And I think when things come up, I find that I just pause and ask them why they think that. So a really common one is like, who's the boss of who? And I think part of it, I mean, to be kind of stereotypical, I think they're boys. And so it's always like, who's who's more powerful? Who's in charge? Those types of discussions end up happening a lot. And daddy is always the boss of mommy. Whenever this comes up, and, I'm all, and, and I'll, I'll stop or I'll stop. <laughs> and I'll be like, well, why is that? And sometimes it's, because it's by size. So then they'll like rank people in our family in order. So my husband's taller than I am. And then and I'm taller than the older one. The older one's taller than the younger one. And the younger one's taller than the dog. So the dog's part of this ranking order too. So he's the, the dog is boss of nobody. And daddy's the boss of everybody. And I'm like, okay, well, in that case, that kind of makes sense. Or, or we'll talk about strength, right? 
And it's true. My husband can lift a ton more weights than I can and stuff. So, so it'll come out that way. But there are definitely moments where I'll ask them why. And if they give me an answer that just isn't true, oh, well. And actually, they would never say this. They would never say my, my husband's smarter than I am because I'm probably smarter than he is. <laughs> but, but like if they said something that just wasn't factual, I would just definitely challenge them on that. And they'll be like, yeah, you're right. Okay, mommy, then you're the boss of daddy in terms of that, or, or I'll find them. But same as you, like in our household, things are super balanced. And in fact, I have to say, I think my husband does a lot more. He cooks breakfast every day. He makes the bed. He does a lot of the more like householdy type stuff than I do, just because he's just better at it than I am. And that has given them a sense that it's a true partnership in that way, right? So even if daddy's the boss of me just because he's taller, doesn't mean that daddy gets the final say, because they know that when mommy really wants something, it gets done. So I think we just, we sort of just articulate it that way, or I'll just challenge their, their thinking and their assumptions. And they're always very, because they're still young enough, they're willing to t- kind of take a step back and examine that too of like, yeah, why did I think that that was true or not true? I think that's really important trying to get the source of when a kid asks you why, my instinct is always to kind of give her the answer, but I was reading recently, that's actually the wrong thing. You should get them to try to answer it and them to kind of come up with the solution. Otherwise, they're always going to seek the answer from another authority. And if we've learned anything, I think in today's chat is like sometimes the authority and the systems don't have the right answer or the wrong answer is kind of baked into the system versus kind of think about it, critically think about and question why something is the way it is. Should the bigger person be the boss? That's why. Why do you think that? And then we also switch things up. Solomon, who's six, he's our night manager now. We've appointed him that role. And that means that before we all go to bed, he makes sure that all the doors are locked and stuff. And so he's got a little checklist and he really does become the boss in that 15 minutes that we're shutting down the house and whatever. So I think there are fun ways that you can get them involved in switching up the dynamic too. I love that idea, giving them an opportunity to be the boss. I think that's an excellent idea. We'll have to try that in our household as well. So Nicole, we've covered a lot of territory. (laughs) Like We've been to the UN and back. I think we're ready for speed round. What do you think, Sharon? I think she's ready. I'm ready. Bring it on. (laughs) So Nicole, What's something about you that folks don't expect? (laughs) I think there's a couple things. So the first is I can dance a pretty decent Scottish Highland fling. I took Scottish Highland dances for years when I was a kid, and I can still do that. Um, Now my daughter is sort of obsessed with Highland dancing because we took her to a Scottish festival. So (laughs) it'll be really fun to see a little Latinx child doing Scottish dancing. I think (laughs) it's going to be great. So I can still do the Highland Fling. And then I would say Halloween's one of my favorite holidays. So I'd love to share this little tidbit with everybody since we're going into the Halloween season. But my grandfather was really passionate about following our family history and our heritage on my mother's side. And he discovered that we are actually related to the Headless Horseman from the McLean of Lock Buoys. So that's kind of a fun, maybe unexpected fact that people might not expect. Wow. So cool and so scary at the same time. (laughs) So scary, but yeah, yeah. And it's sad. It's interesting too, because it's still sort of a legend that the family follows today. So the legend is that whenever a member of the chief's family is about to die, that the vision of Ewan, who is the the headless horseman, could be seen or heard at Loch Bowie. So yeah, so it's very interesting. Wow. Next question. What is a book, movie, or show? that you would recommend to people that has characters that you can relate to? Oh, wow. 
There are so many. I think I'd have to go back to one of the books that resonated with me so much when I was younger. And it may seem so cliche, but Joe from Little Women, in my teenage years, I feel like I could relate so much to her feeling you didn't quite fit in, that you wanted to do something that that maybe others couldn't quite understand. So of course, that one was so formative for me. But I also think there's a book I'm reading now that has been very eye-opening that I would recommend anybody read just when we're talking about systems and outcomes called Invisible Women. And it's by Caroline Criado Perez, but it's all about how data bias, how there's like bias in data that really dictates some of the decisions we make. So I think that's another one that I would add that's more of a, maybe a current read, but very relevant to to today. So I kind of like to ask this two different ways, more so now because we've spent so much time on parenting, but what's your favorite mom dish from your mom? So that's part one. So what's your favorite mom dish? Okay, so my mother makes this chicken casserole that is a very Midwestern thing, I think, having a casserole, but it's chicken and Swiss cheese, and it has these really buttery crumbles on top, and it was my grandmother's recipe. It is like the ultimate comfort food, and it's kind of time-consuming to me because you have to you have to bake the chicken in advance and all of those things, but it is delightful. So it's probably one of my favorite mom dishes. Now, as a mom, what, what's your mom dish that your daughter likes from you? <laughs> Anything dessert related, probably. (laughs) (laughs) She certainly has a sweet tooth, but I would say probably her favorite mom dish in the savory category would be anything Italian. So lasagna, manicotti, those types of things. Anything with cheese and sauce, she is all about. Manicotti. Wow, I haven't had that in so long. Sounds very yummy. We just start, we, we just started making that recently. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And perfect for like, I feel like fall and winter months. It's like a definite comfort food. My wife and I, we have this in common. Italian food is foreign food for us. It's like, <laughs> like when we make Italian food, it's like, oh, we're doing the exotic stuff. Now, never mind all the weird Chinese and Indian dishes and Vietnamese dishes we're always cooking. It's like, oh, that we're going to make lasagna. Oh, my God. You know what's so funny, though? I will say one of my daughter's favorite foods for takeout, I don't make this at home, but she loves Indian food. And she is not afraid of spice at all. So I would say that's probably one of the biggest carryout, <laughs> carryouts that we've gotten over this whole pandemic is, is Indian food. Yeah, for my kid, that's like, ah, oh, Tuesday, <laughs> Indian food. Oh. <laughs> what's your least favorite food? Ooh. Probably okra. Okra, yeah. Oh. Yeah. You, you too, Cher? No, not seriously. N- not, not me too, but I can see why. Tell us why. Uh, no, I can't like, as soon as you said that, I was like, I'm pretty sure I know why. Yeah. I don't dislike a lot of foods, but that's one that I, and maybe artichokes, actually. I would say okra and artichokes might be tied. Those are two foods that I just, they're just not my favorite. Yeah. I mean, okra for me is weird, slimy on the inside. Yeah. It's a texture okay, thing, but I think. I got to defend over because it's, <laughs> it's up there. It's up there for me. Yeah, it is slimy, especially when you're like cutting it up. It, it, but when you make it crispy, or fr- so the Southerner in me is like fried okra at Cracker Barrel. Yeah. The Indian person in me is like Bindi, that's our Ladyfinger Subji, which is, again, it's crispy, it's fried. There's like pomegranate powder all over it. I think you guys are just think, think, you're scared by the slime. Yeah. You can get rid of the slime fries off. But- so when you fry it, are you cutting it up or are you just frying the outside? Oh, no, no. Yeah, you got to cut it into little squares. And Got you can't it. 
pre-cut okra, like you pre-cut your green beans, you got to cut it and then throw it in the fryer in the next 10 minutes. Like just pan fry it, lightly pan. I'm I'm defending okra. I don't know why. (laughs) But it's like, and my daughter hates it. My wife and I love it. So we always have to make an extra vegetable when we eat okra. (laughs) Well, maybe I just haven't had it prepared in a way that is super delicious. So... I'll keep my mind open. Yeah, I'm open to that. I'll give you artichokes, though. (laughs) Fuck artichokes. I love artichokes. (laughs) See, I I love artichokes. Love them. You know what turned me off from artichokes? My mom made this dish when I was a kid, and it ended up so bad (laughs) that like, when she served it, (laughs) none of my family would eat it. I mean, nobody liked it. And so we decided to give it to our dog, and even the dog wouldn't eat it. Oh, (laughs) no. So sorry, mom, if you're listening, but that dish was awful. And I think it's sort of, (laughs) I think it's sort of, yeah, it sort of did it in for artichokes for me. So who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh, gosh, there are so many people. I think right now, I would love to interview Michelle Obama. I think she is just such a positive light. I think that the example that she set with her leadership, I would love to just sit down and have a conversation with her. I Certainly Michelle Obama. Yeah, she's great. And I love her podcast as well. It's amazing. So good. And finally, what does being a modern minority mean to you? Oh, I think it's having hope. I've been thinking about this. It's easy with everything going on to feel overwhelmed and to feel like somehow there's not a path forward. But I think hope is what gets us through and the belief that ultimately people are good and that we just have to have empathy and compassion and listen and seek to understand. And I think in this world, it's easier to be a pessimist and it's not as easy to be hopeful and an optimist. And so I would, I think that the folks who will change the world are the ones who continue to have hope that the future can be brighter. So I think that's, I think that's what makes me a modern minority in that sense is just having hope in a time of chaos. The one thing I take away from a lot of our conversations is optimism because I'm a Debbie Downer man. Like I am. <laughs> and it's, it's not just the optimism, but it's you're doing the work. And that's when optimistic, smart people are doing the work. I think that's where differences get made. So thanks for doing what you do. And yeah, thanks for sharing kind of where you're coming from, Nicole. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been such a pleasure. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode talk about bootstrapping businesses. I flip-flop strapped, okay? I didn't even have boots. I wasn't even that savvy, didn't have any startup funds, no official legitimate mentor, no coach. I didn't have it at all. I learned through iterating and bailing miserably. And so I want to make sure that other people can lessen the time from inception of their idea to success. And that's really what inspired me, trying to fill a gap, something that I didn't have that if I did, I would have gotten where I am today a lot quicker with probably less bumps. And in our communities, a lot of youth and young adults of color, they just don't have the resources and the connections. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.